Hey everybody, it is Contextualize. I'm AJ. This is Jim. We're here with you again. Brought to you by... One Acre Cafe today is our uh, corporate sponsor. Yeah, <laughs> our corporate. I told Corey about it. She's like, do you want to use the word sponsor or just give a shout out? And I'm yeah, like, we're going to yeah. shout out to our sponsor, One Acre Cafe. For, for us, those terms are synonymous. They here, are, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, One Acre Cafe, we uh, we had a, actually had men's lunch there, and uh, I don't know, 11 of us, something like that. Yeah. Got to be there, and got to see our good friend Aaron Gentles there as well, so. Uh, yeah, One Acre Cafe is a nonprofit that addresses food insecurity, and it's about a quarter of a mile, maybe half a mile from the yeah. church, and it's a place where people that need food can also come and get some job skills, some life skills that they can work and serve. Yeah. And uh, then those who come and eat, yeah. the money they pay for their lunch is also a donation to this nonprofit's mission. It's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. And I'll just say today, and this has been true before, but just today's fresh in my mind. It's actually really good food. That's awesome. Like, it was great. Uh, really enjoyed it. So it's it's a really creative uh, nonprofit, and they make Good food. And so. I might get this wrong, but when we were, when I was in that, that sector, this would be called like a social enterprise where addressing food insecurity for those who are there serving, it's also a restaurant. It's an enterprise now that's actually yeah. generating revenue to offset the goal, which is the real goal is to help those who are yeah. volunteering and serving, but yeah. getting the chance to eat as well as getting skills that, that they could market in the, yeah. in the jobs, job room. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah. So, One Acre Cafe, thank, thank you guys. For Walnut your, Street, uh, West Walnut Street. On the corridor here. Yeah. So, man, well, uh, later, well, here in a minute, we'll get into 2 Samuel 16. But uh, we were talking just before this about Simeon Trust stuff. Is Jim, when is it you head out for that? Uh, the end of February. Okay. So, several weeks yet, but and you'll be going... Boston. Boston. And helping lead a sim or a Simeon Trust workshop on Isaiah, um, but we were talking about context. You had mentioned that, so uh, yeah, this is contextualized. So I mean, it, it's it worth seems doing. Very appropriate. So yeah, and so AJ's preaching at Christ Community this Sunday. Mm -hmm. So this week, I've been really trying to focus on this instruction I'll be giving on what is context, and so thought it'd be worth just throwing it out there for this podcast. Uh, yeah. So there's four different types of context. Um, you could call it three because you could link a couple of these together. Yeah. But I, and and some, some groups will use different correct. terms or overlap, but like this is at least For what helpful. I'll be instructing yeah. in, just kind of a fourfold understanding of context that help us understand the meaning of a passage. So you yeah. have the literary context, which yeah. is really inside the book that it's written, what comes before and after the uh -huh. passage I'm looking at or I'm teaching on or trying to understand that yeah. informs the meaning of what I'm actually studying. Yeah. So... Um, that's literary context. Yeah. You're staying inside the book. And I was listening to one speaker talk, and he just said, how do you know which parts of the literary context to pull in? He said, well, two rules of thumb would be the proximity of the contextual connection, connection uh -huh. and the weight of it, the yeah. gravitas that yeah. actually in, you have to acknowledge it yeah. sometimes, right? The context is yeah. so strong. Yeah, so not just kind of any link that you can come up with, but kind of what, what links influence the meaning. Yeah. Or uh, drive home. And I think sadly, and I can probably be guilty of this, but a lot of times teachers will spend the first 10 minutes of their sermon or their instruction just reminding everybody what's happening in the story <laughs> and then saying they've done their work with context. Yeah. And they've actually just lost 10 minutes to teach something that's really going to be effective. So yeah. what we yeah. want to do is tie in and connect to the literary contextual elements that inform the meaning of what we're looking at. Yeah. That's the goal in teaching. Yeah. So there's literary context. 
Related to that, but broader, is biblical context. Yeah. So then you, you don't stop at the limits of the book you're studying, but you go further yeah. and you say, well, what parts of the Bible might my text be pointing to? Uh-huh. So in, a, in the book of Isaiah, for example, it's 66 chapters. It's huge. But there's all sorts of times in which you have um, reference to David's throne. Yeah. Or something about the seed of David. Something about, you know, what happened for God to set up a king, a kingship in the first place. Uh-huh. So you'd say, well, i got to turn to 2 Samuel to see that. Or yeah. um, there's particular kings that yeah. are referenced. And so it might be worth looking back at, um, oh, excuse me, Egypt is yeah. huge in yeah. the book of Isaiah. Yeah, right. And so you have the threats of Assyria or you have the threat of Babylon, but you have this theme of Egypt where many times Isaiah is going to say, just like it was when you came out of Egypt. Yeah. So that's my passage if I'm yeah. teaching it. Going back in the Bible, all the way to the book of Exodus, to uh-huh. make a point. Yeah. But that biblical context would be known to the original reader. Yeah. So that's biblical yeah. context. And just to throw something in, it's, uh, this is backwards looking, right? So it's, it's how does this passage or my author use kind of his Bible at that time? At that time. Um, because in this contextual step, we're, we're seeking to uncover the meaning of the author, kind of the, the initial meaning of it there's there's space to go well what what's in the future yes that, that relates to the other references in the bible but this is really asking what's before this yeah so in my notes what i'll be teaching that particular instruction i'm going to use isaiah 7 as an example mm-hmm. so isaiah 7 is when you should bear a son a virgin will bear a son and they yeah. will call his name emmanuel yeah all right biblical context for me is to help the we're all going to wrestle and say is there a place where God with us has been spoken uh-huh. in the Bible of the day of the hearers of this word. Because yeah. you, this is the first time Emmanuel has been used in, in the formal sense. Yeah. But if you go back into Exodus, oh my gosh, he's gonna, he tells his people, I'll be with you. Yeah. Yeah. I will be your God. You'll be my people. Yeah. All through the egg, I'm going to gather you at Mount Sinai and you're going to know that who I am. Yeah. And so you have all these times. And, and I would say that's biblical context uh-huh. where you have the, the reader is being brought back to something right. that is known. Right. But biblical theology is how does the rest of the Bible use yeah. this text? Well, you fast forward in Matthew chapter two. Right. He quotes a virgin <laughs> will have a son and call his name Emmanuel. That's the gospel yeah. of Jesus. Yeah. So that's looking forward. Yeah. Well. So they're both important, but yeah. just the context piece, we're just talking about the prior yeah. piece. And then I'll just say the last two, which are kind of fun. Um, Historical context and cultural context. Uh-huh. So historical context is what is the situation of the original readers of the book yeah. or hearers of the word. Yeah. Um, I have to understand what was going on in that historical time. Yeah. Cultural context is what are the things going on inside the very text I'm reading that the readers would know. Yeah. Um, it's kind of the setting or like, so what's the cultural context of the Israelites when they are watching David stand up against Goliath. Uh, what is the cultural context of Gath mm-hmm. and the Philistines? Yeah. Yeah. That's all cultural context. Yeah. Historical context is the book is written, it's put together, it's read uh-huh. way after yeah. David and Goliath. Yeah. It's the divided yeah. kingdom. They're looking yeah. back at it. So there's a difference between what's the cultural context of David and Saul and yeah. all the parties in that day, yeah. the sons of Jesse. Yeah. What's the historical context of the readers who know all that stuff happening yeah. or looking back? Yeah. And maybe a quick example of that um, outside of what you said is the, the plagues in Exodus. The cultural context would look at 
you know, what are these plagues? How do these relate to Egypt or their gods? Kind of looking at all that in the moment of the story. Yes. The historical context would realize that, well, these books are penned by Moses on the plains of Moab as they're getting ready to go in to defeat the enemies of, or, you know, their enemies in the land of Canaan. And to hear how God defeats Egypt as you're getting ready to cross into a new land for those hearers or readers of the book. It's profound. It's game-changing. Um, it, They're it not sitting there comments. wondering if we're going to make it right. out of Egypt. Yeah, and so those yeah. you know, those two different contextual pieces are important, but they're different. So We just nerded out on context. I don't know if that excites anybody That's else. Great. But if this, that excites you, send us a postcard of and, your excitement. And go to One Acre Cafe because this has been sponsored. <laughs> That's right. Pay it forward to One Acre Cafe. <laughs> Go take Man. your Bible and study and think about That's context good. Somebody's, at Acre Cafe. Somebody's going to actually do that. I'm just going to make a prediction. All right. All right. Second Samuel 16, man. All right. So, I believe what a chapter. Yeah. Um, so we got, I mean, basically it's it's three pretty cut scenes. You know, there are three different scenes here. But where we're at is, is Absalom, David's son, has taken the throne, um, a coup, and David has fled the city. And that's, we're meeting David on his, his, his fleet. Yeah. Right he's, now. He's mid stride. Yeah. And he hasn't stopped yet. Yeah. He'll stop midway through this section. Yeah. And so this first scene is, is verses one to four. And uh, David's not far, far out of the city. But then Ziba, the, the servant of Mephibosheth, meets him. And we've, we've seen Mephibosheth a couple chapters ago. We saw Ziba uh, back then as well. But remember, Mephibosheth, yeah. Is Saul's son who had two lame feet and David has taken care of him. Really taken him as a son. Yeah, right. taken yeah. him as a son. Yeah. And he eats at the king's table yeah. as though he were his own. Son. And so Ziba comes and he's got donkeys and raisins and bread and fruits and wine, all this stuff. Um, and you know, basically says, Hey, these these are for you, David, as you're fleeing. Like here's here's a, a batch of supplies. For you as you go, uh, verse three. David says, "Where is your master son? Right? Where's Where's Mephibosheth?" And Ziba says, "Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. He said, for he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father." And then David responds, "All that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours." This is it's sad. Like, bam! Radical. This is so sad. It's only four verses given to Mephibosheth, functionally denying the grace and mercy extended to him by David. Yeah. And, and we don't have much unpacking from this except for, like, in an instant, David says, right. I now revoke all that I gave to Mephibosheth. And I give it to you. Which was part of David also showing himself to be such a different kind of king than Saul was. Yeah. His mercy, his yeah. kindness. And so, I mean, we can think about this, kind of what, what's happening in the story. I mean, you have a fleeing king, and somebody comes out with provision. Like, that's a, that's a super good thing to ingratiate yourself with a fleeing king. Um while the, so, so Ziba at the end of the story comes out kind of a, a hero of sorts, and then Mephibosheth is just kind of covered with shame to the reader. Now we don't need to go there yet, but when we get to chapter 19? 19? 19. When we get to chapter nineteen, there might be a uh, a second version of the story that we encounter. But I think we can save that until we get there because we're not there yet. There might be. Might be possibly. You can read it, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, I think with that, I mean, we just kind of see what's happening at this point, what yeah. Ziva says, and we'll, we'll get to the other part later. So that's scene one. Scene two, 
Uh, King David comes to Baharim and meets a crazy man. <laughs> it's a wild scene right here. Oh, it just keeps going. So now David is, he's on the run. He, he's not fully safe. And, and we don't know as the reader yet just how evil Absalom's about right, to reveal right. himself to be too, which yeah. we'll see at the end of this chapter. But yeah, this Shimei, the son of Gera, he came in, and, in, in the house of Saul. Yeah, sorry, from he's from Saul's house. Right. Yeah, and he just starts cursing David and throwing stones Stone. at him and all of his servants, and he just won't stop cursing, telling David that he's a worthless man. And then he says, "The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom." And this is it's because you're evil. Yeah. Blood's on you. Yeah. So this wild man shows up. He's I mean, I doubt that this man, Shimei, knows what's just happened with Mephibosheth. But you yeah. have Mephibosheth of Saul's house actually reject David and choose Absalom. Yeah. Now you have a crazy wild man show up from Saul's house telling David that his big loss of the throne is because of the blood that he shed inside yeah. the house of Saul. And, and it's it's the Lord's doing. Like Yahweh is the one who has caused Absalom to rise up here. Um, and this guy, I mean, I don't know if boldness is the right word. He's kind of crazy. I mean, I just can't imagine what it would take for me to do this kind of thing to a, uh, a group of armed men, but that's what he's doing. <laughs> um, and so Abishai, uh, the son of Zariah. So if I remember right, that's one of the three, three. Abishai, Joab, and Azahel. Yep. Um, you know, why, why should this dead dog curse my Lord, the King? Let me go over, take out his head. Like, you know, I'll, t- I'll take care of this. Let's put this man to death. You just you just look, picture him. Like, you want me to take care of this? <laughs> it's like he is the, the you know, yeah. the, the warrior man. And that's, you know. But David says, uh, what do I have to do with you? Uh, talking to Abishai. If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? Um, and so David just kind of lets it go. Um, he says, my, my own son seeks my life in verse 11. How much more this Benjaminite? Leave him alone. Let him curse for the Lord has told him to do it. Um, so David doesn't want to do any action here. And he, he goes further in 12. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So t- as I read this, it reminded me of David when Saul was still alive. Uh-huh. I just saw the same thing. Yeah. David has consistently said... I will not take things into my own hands. Yeah. I will not take Saul's life when the Lord determines that it is my day to serve as the anointed in full. He will address Saul. Yeah. He's saying the same thing here yeah. to Abishai. Why should I take the life of this crazy man? He could either be cursing me because the Lord has sent him, or the Lord's going to honor Lord me for Lord the fact him. that Lord I was merciful yeah. in this moment. Yeah. Which, by the way... Having spoken it out loud now, it reminds me of what we've been seeing a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Yeah. The Lord is going to bring justice down on his enemies. He, he will bring the vengeance required if necessary. I, though, will seek to be merciful to those who hate me. Yeah. And that's essentially what you have David doing here. That's 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 good. I didn't think of it while I was reading it. I, had, I didn't silence. either. I didn't either. Note to self. Read the text and then speak about it out loud till something comes out of your mouth that reminds you of something that you've heard in the gospel. <laughs> There you go. So David, I mean, he, and there's just, I mean, there's a level of trust in this. There's a, there's a level of contentment, just trusting the Lord in that. And so they're 13, right? They just keep going. 
But Shima, I mean, this guy, he just keeps going. <laughs> he, he walks on the hillside opposite him, curses, throws stones, and flings dust. Um, so, I mean, th- this is, again, we have a fleeing king who gets told that uh, Mephibosheth, who's kind of a adopted son type of, you know, like a loyal man, is, is disloyal, and now he's being cursed by one of Saul's. I mean, it, this is a, a shameful exit. I mean, it's, it's a compounding thing. Well, and it's it's wearing on him, and you have yep. that in verse fourteen. These are those moments I don't think that we should look past. That the the Old Testament narrative wants us to see David and all the people with him. They arrived at the Jordan, and they were weary. Yeah, all right, it's just exhausted. Everything is just turning its head for David in an instant. We also have to remember yeah. this is you know after David's you know sin and struggle. Yeah, yeah. So there's just been a series of years now where David has not proven to be the one who could bring in the full righteousness of the kingdom as God's people would want. But he's still just desperately trusting for God's yeah. provision and care. So. Uh, well, I think you made a really important comment there that this follows David's um, really uh, big sin. I don't know. You know, it's probably a better way to say that. But... Um, after sleeping with Bathsheba and uh, ordering the murder of Uriah, I mean, the Lord gives his word in 1210. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then all of these family issues begin to unfold. Um, And then, I mean, and maybe that, maybe David is thinking of that here when he says, you know, maybe this is, maybe this guy's right. Maybe this guy, though, he seems crazy. Maybe this is the Lord's curse upon me because so of these words. Let's interject with like some application. Because I don't believe that we would say out of this that believers are supposed to walk around saying, maybe God's going to squish me like a bug because I've been so disobedient. Mm-hmm. Like we're called to trust in his yeah. declaration over us that we're his sons and daughters and he will discipline those he loves, but we're his child. Yeah. David had all the promises of God also. Yeah. However, the consequence of his sin he had had God declared to him, was going to fall him. Yeah. So as a result of that awareness, the net result is in fear of God, like anxious fear. Right. The net result in David's life is trust. Yeah. This could be indeed from the Lord as part of the consequence of my sin that I have committed before him. Yeah. But if it's from the Lord, maybe he'll also be merciful and just, and he will repay me good for the fact that I'm going to be merciful. But what I don't have the option to do is rebel against God and try to control my circumstances and then keep these consequences from developing yeah. in my life if yeah. they're from the Lord. Yeah. And do you think we could say like he's not fighting the discipline of the Lord? Yeah. Well, he a, perceives maybe the discipline he, of the he's, Lord. He's yeah. leaning into it in a way. He's, he's accepting it. But he's not walking around moping. You know? right. and this isn't 2 Corinthians 7 where it talks about having a, a sorrow that leads to death. Woe is me. Yeah. I've lost the throne. I messed up. I knew this was going to happen. God must hate me. Everybody hates me. You don't have that. Yeah. But you do have David say, this could be from the Lord. Yeah. And, and, and kind of so, so be it. Like, let yeah. the Lord do whatever the Lord's going to do. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's a great lesson for a, a kingdom citizen Yeah. who knows we still have sin in our souls, sin in our flesh, sin in yeah. our communities. And there are going to be times that God exposes us to the extent of our sin's consequence. Yeah. And we can trust him. Yeah. Um, but it's not the same as having fear and anxiety that he no longer loves us or cares. Yeah. Yeah. Because what's going on in Jerusalem is such a radical turn. It is wicked. 
God is not the author of wickedness, mm-hmm. yeah. but the consequence of David's sin generationally is alluded to somehow in these chapters because God said it's going to happen. And now look how wicked Absalom is when he comes. So we're in verse 15 of chapter 16 now. Yeah, third scene. And when Absalom shows up, it's just ugly. Yeah. Yeah, so we've got Absalom Ahithophel, who was an advisor to David who defected and yep. went to Absalom. And then we have Hushai, the archite, and we met him at the end of chapter 15. He's the he, friend of David. He goes to David, and David says, like, you're loyal to me, I know that, but you go back and basically be my, my ears. Uh, there. And so Hushai arrives back in Jerusalem with Absalom and Hithophel. Uh, and he's described here again, like you said, as David's friend. And so he, he arrives and greets Absalom and says, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom says, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? So Hushai's friendship with David, I mean, it's all over this. It's, it's the only way he's described here. Yeah, but do you know what bothers me about this? Once again, since you're speaking out loud, I hear it differently than when I read it in silence. Absalom does not call David his father. Yeah. He calls him your friend. Yeah. And there's just division. Cancel culture has just happened here in 2 Samuel 16. But you have this, I'm not even going to acknowledge who that man is that I have just wickedly run out. And um, yet we as the reader know that... He's going to stay loyal to David. Yeah. And so, and, and Hishai here basically, you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm, whom should I serve? I shouldn't be your son. And so, Hishai, by his words, is pledging allegiance. That kind of sounds funny. He's, he's pledging loyalty to Absalom, uh, which actually isn't true. Exactly. Right. Um, which we could get into if we want, but. Uh, Absalom responds, or Absalom then says to Ahithophel, give your counsel, what should we do? Um, and this is, this is where it really takes a It's turn. rated R. Yeah. Rated worse than that. So Ahithophel says, go into your, and remember, Ahithophel is David's former advisor, now Absalom, his son's advisor. He says, go to your fa- into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father. And everybody's hands will be strengthened. And so verse 22, they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. It's just wicked. And it's gross. And it has an intention built into it, which is to show that you're, you're a stench in your father's not. I mean, like... It is intentionally the most offensive thing that Ahithophel can think that Absalom should do. Yeah. And then he also says, when you do something with that much gross display, everybody's going to be loyal to you. Yeah. And it's it, it's a bold exclamation point of there's a new king in town. I mean, he, he's underscoring that immensely um, and violating God's law, violating his father violating these women, violating Israel that is just yeah. kind of publicly parading this. Yeah, so I'm trying to think of the difference between cultural context and historical context. Yeah. And the cultural context in this scene is David is by the Jordan, tired. Mm-hmm. Picture the people of Jerusalem. Yeah. You know, just all of a sudden, where did David go? Right. What's going on? 
That's the cultural context. Yeah. This wicked son who had been exiled has now come back and is just waiting his time. You have the confusion as to who's loyal to David and now who's being loyal to... I mean, so that's the cultural context. Mm-hmm. And it's just gross. Yeah. Historical context. I think that we think of, we need to think of the readers yeah. during the era of the divided kingdom looking back and getting this yucky feeling in their stomach of just how wicked... Mm-hmm. A king could be that would reject God, just like Saul was. Then David was supposed to be. Yeah. And then Absalom is going to be horrendous. Yeah. And now there's going to end up eventually being a long line of kings and coups and all the different things. And you have the historical context as readers looking at this constancy of recycling who's in the throne and realizing we need a righteous king. Yeah. Yeah. We need a righteous kingdom. Yeah. That's what we're most hungry for, most yeah. thirsty for. Yeah. And it just stares at us at the end of this text. The, the other thing I would add, and I hadn't thought about this so you were talking, but and one of the things, especially in the divided kingdom and kind of later on, that God's people realize is sin has consequences, right? And that, that becomes very evident at certain points. But um, sin has consequences, and if we... Right, we've talked about that a little bit with David already. Like it's his own sin that has begun to precipitate these events. But I just noticed, I mean, there there's a a poetic justice to what's happening here. Because in chapter eleven, it's David was on his roof when he sees Bathsheba bathing. And that like that's the moment that this begins. And so now David's son is on the same roof taking his concubines, which, I mean, it has, it's its own conversation there, but um, there's a poetic justice in the, the wickedness of it. But So I think sometimes as a reader, we need to go there as much as we need to experience the stench of the scene. And, yeah. And even the word stench is used, right? And to sit there and allow the gross extent of the fall yeah. to cause us to conclude our time in the world with just a simple longing. Yeah. Another thing I'll say is we should be very careful not to always walk around saying, whoa, it's so much worse now in my day than it was in the... Right? Okay. Finish with that. Wickedness has abounded uh-huh. for those who reject the Lord and is anointed. Yeah. The nations are against the Son. Yeah. Psalm 2. And it's not pretty. Yeah. And when it's lived out in the display of gross celebration of sin, we should grieve it and we should long for a righteous king who will set things in order. And that's what's ultimately promised in Christ yeah. for us. So yeah. I think it's okay to just sigh at the end of a chapter like this and say, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. And what I almost interjected there is... Uh, you pretty much repeated verbatim what somebody said at our community group last night. Really? After we studied Judges 19, which is, to me, the the hardest and grossest chapter in the Bible, um, at least one of them. Uh, but yeah, somebody said it. We sometimes people say, you know, it, it's better now than it used to be, or it's worse now than it used to, whichever way you want to go. But the grossness of the sin that we read about then, and even you know what you just said here, um, sin is always gross. <laughs> Depravity unrestrained by God's grace always goes like this. Um, it's got a, a gravitational pull towards this kind of stuff. Right, and, then, and that's what the reader's begging for is who will write this 
yeah. offensive wrong. When will gravity pull back toward righteousness, yeah. if you will? When, yeah. when what are the forces going to do that? And so we're kind of left unknowing yeah. as we read. Yeah. But if you think of the history of God's people, it's exactly what the narrative of redemption is just showing over and over is just, oh, a judge shows up. Yeah, but it didn't last. And the, yeah. the effect and the, the pull and the grossness of sin is going to happen again. Yeah. And it just goes, it just cycles. Yeah. And so I think we can try to feel better about our life sometimes when I say, well, where, I, where I'm living or where I see it, it's not as bad as it once. But like, there's not gradations of... Mm-hmm rejection of God. I mean, there's displays that are far worse and uh-huh. grosser and there's consequences that are far worse and grosser, but it's either righteous or it's not. Yeah. yeah. And when we see this sort of pompous pride, you, we're left as a reader just begging God, would you please address this and see it? Yeah. Fix it. Yeah. Judge it. Yeah. Be merciful to us who have to look at it. Yeah. And he has in Christ. Yeah. And he will in full. Yeah. Yeah. I just have a note and pencil on my, at the end of chapter 16. I don't know when I wrote it. Sin is so gross and evil. Parents of kids, like, I think that's one of the things we want our covenant kids to know mm-hmm. by the time yeah. they're adults. Yeah. Sin, unrestrained by God's grace, is gross it's and evil. gross and evil. Yeah. Yeah, and it I mean, it's a little bit different verbiage, but I mean it reminds me of uh, Proverbs like seven, six, seven, eight, wherever it is in there, of the seductress woman and kind of say sin in general. Um, she's got honey on her lips, but her feet go down to death, and we we need that reminder because even in I want to say smaller ways, I mean we're we're fooled by sin every day to think that it's not as vile and gross and deadly. As it is. As it is. Yeah. Um, so we need that curtain pulled back. And we need to live with longing. Yeah. Right? Because if anybody sitting there on the streets of Jerusalem looking up is seeing this, what is a father doing? Covering the eyes of their child? What's the prayer in their gut? Like, God bring David back. Yeah. Who's going to stop this? Yeah. Where's it going to go next? Right? Yeah. All those things are going on. That's cultural context, yeah. by the way. Yeah. But we should be feeling the same thing. That's yeah. right. Good. Pray with desperation and trust that God's raising up a righteous king in Christ who will reign forever on a new heavens and new earth where all this evil is done away with, judged, abolished, mm-hmm. forgotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.